I know some of you, when you saw the title of this sermon, you got excited. Calm down, that's not what I'm talking about. So, no, no not going that direction this morning. Going another direction. Uh, our memory verse, I think that's next, right? Is that our memory verse? Yep. Let's uh, remember our memory verse. We're missing a few uh, more words, and let me just remind myself that uh, it, we observed his glory, not we beheld. I'm going to say it right this time, okay? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. Thank you, Jace, for clapping for me for getting it right. Uh, yeah, that's our memory verse uh, for the next few weeks until, I don't know, March, I think, is when we, we change up. We're going to be in John for a while. John chapter 7, believing is drinking. Now, our focal passage for the week for our Connect group was, uh, I've, I've forgotten now, what, 15 through 29 or something like that? 14 through 29? Seems like it. That was an odd, odd place to break. It, it was just, it, it just didn't work. I didn't feel like for a, a sermon. So we're gonna re- come a little further on down to verses 37 through 39. That's gonna be our focal passage this morning. Now we're gonna talk about the whole chapter, which honestly you have to because this is all kind of one scene. Uh, we're gonna talk about the whole thing, but that's gonna be that passage is going to be our focus this morning. Believing is drinking. And Jesus said it, not me, sort of. Uh, But that's what we're looking at. Now, a a common uh, trope in in treasure movies, Jace loves National Treasure, the the, the one, the two, the three, is it three movies now? Now there's a TV show, that's right. Um, but the first one, and, and, and they do this in every, every treasure hunting movie, when they finally find the treasure, the, the treasure room, they, they go through the door and, and they have a torch, because um, it's always a torch, uh, never a flashlight, it's always a torch, um, and, and they go in the room and, and it's, oh, this little closet-like thing with, ooh, look at all this treasure, but then they light something that lights up this whole room, and then it's, then it's like the, 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 a warehouse, a, 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 an aircraft hangar type thing. The, the fire spreads, goes all this direction, and you find it's, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of square feet of treasure that you couldn't see with just the torch right here. You couldn't see how far back it went. You couldn't see all the stuff that was in there. That is a great picture of what happens when we first just read Scripture, but then we're taught Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, if we read Scripture, and we read John chapter 7, we read about the festival of shelters. There's no explanation there, really, for what's going on, why they do it. Um, we, We read down through the passage, we've got... Jesus talking to his brothers, then Jesus arguing with religious folks, and then in verses 37 39, what we're going to look at today, we, we, we hear, I'm the, uh, uh, come to me all who are thirsty. And that is a great 
message. That is a great passage. Those two or three verses, that, that one verse really, that is a salvation message that if you are just reading John, never opened your Bible before, you're reading the Gospel of John, you get to that passage, you go, I'm thirsty. You, you, you know what it means. You, you know he's not really talking about water. He's made that clear in the previous chapters. And, and you get here and it is a salvation message that is easily comprehended, I believe. But if, if we stop there, if we just read Scripture like that, then we've got the torch inside this monstrous treasure room, but all we see is what's right there around us. It's why the Christian life was never meant to be done individually. That's why Paul tells Timothy, what I have taught you teach others, passing down these teachings. When John wrote the gospel to the folks he wrote it to in 70 A.D. or so, or the 70s A.D., just 40 years after Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, and, and taken to heaven, Everybody he wrote to knew what went on at the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. They were quite familiar with it. There was no need for explanation in it, in, in the gospel, because they knew. Well, the further we get away from the culture, the, the, the time frame, the historical era, the less we are connected and are aware of what all was going on. That's why we have commentaries. That's why we have people who study this for years and years and years and learn the original languages and they write books and then your preachers and your teachers go and read those books and come back and tell you what they learned this week, which is exactly what I'm doing this morning. The Feast of the Tabernacles was five days after the Day of Atonement. It would have been September, October, uh, their month. Uh, I can't remember the name of that month that they were celebrating this in, but their, their month ran from mid-September to mid-October. Um, Feast of the Tabernacles would have been about where we have the first week of October. They're, they're, they're about. It's uh, five days after the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is, and, and then 15 days after Rosh Hashanah, the new year. If you remember, I talked about the Jewish new year, Rosh Hashanah, uh, a few weeks ago. The whole purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind the Jewish people of the wandering years of the Exodus, when they lived in tents for 40 years. They didn't have a permanent home. And it's to remind them of that. It's, it's a seven-day celebration, and as it grew, it actually, I mean, as it progressed, it kind of got to eight days. The, the eighth day was a kind of a wrap-up day that was tacked on to the end. It's, it, it, that only matters when you start talking about what day Jesus was actually talking on. Was he on the seventh day or the eighth day? There's some things that you read in books that don't matter for Sunday morning. They celebrated this, this feast um, not only for the, the, the wandering years. They weren't just remembering the booths, the, 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 the tents, the tabernacles that they had to live in. But they are celebrating the, the pillar of fire that guided them by night. That as the Lord led them, and it came to rest in a spot. It was a, a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire by night. I, I actually think... Um, 
the, the, the movie Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, Charlton Heston probably got it closest to right, if I'm remembering the movie. They, it, during the day, it was probably, you saw the smoke with the fire inside, but it just wasn't as bright because it was daylight. At night, it was the same fire and smoke pillar, but you saw the fire at night. They celebrated this by lighting torches and lamps at night to, to represent that pillar of fire that, uh, uh, that led them and, and, and stopped at night. The other thing that they did, remember, they wandered 40 years in a desert. God provided food, he provided uh, the man of the quail, and he provided water where there wasn't water. Water was poured out every morning of the seven days uh, at the altar. Now, uh, the water portion of this was a, a relatively new part of the celebration, but by the time Jesus comes along and he's teaching in the temple, it's well entrenched in their uh, entrenched, yeah, funny, um, in, in their celebration. That everybody knew what was coming. There was actually a big fight over it some couple of hundred years beforehand. That doesn't pertain to the sermon this morning either, but it does make for interesting reading. Prayers for rain were offered up. Uh, this was the, the end of the summer, and all of the, the cisterns in town would be very close to dry. So they would be taking water that was a precious commodity. Think Elijah on Mount Carmel when they were in the, at the, toward the end of a three-year drought, and he's pouring water on this altar, wasting water. That's what they were doing. They were taking this precious resource that there was very little of at this time of the year, and they were pouring it out seven days in a row at the altar, sacrificing, literally sacrificing water to the Lord, praying for rain to come and fill up the, the cisterns. They were praying for refreshing. They were praying for renewal. They were praying for refilling. It also, this festival, was a time of expectation and hope for the coming Messiah. You following all this? The Messiah that would bring refreshing and renewing and refilling. And what Jesus does here is one of the absolute best examples of textualized preaching and or teaching and or witnessing that we have in the entire Bible. Where Jesus takes the events and the environment and he uses, uses them to move to a salvation message. Probably the other greatest example, uh, just under Jesus' example here, is Paul in Athens when he's sitting in the, uh, the uh, Agora. And he says, I see you have a statue. You've got all these gods, all these statues to all these gods. I also see you're very religious. You even have a statue to the unknown god. Just in case you missed one, let me tell you about the god you missed. The one you don't know about. That's contextualized preaching. Jesus does it here. And he does it phenomenally well, as we would expect from the master teacher, right? This week, this Sunday, we're looking at the water. This, this Feast of, of Tabernacles is actually the theme throughout chapter 9. 
maybe even some into 10. It, it's, it's, the, it's the setting for a lot of teaching uh, for the next three or four chapters. This week, we're looking at the water portion of the teaching. Next week, we're going to look at the light portion of the teaching. Next week, we're also going to talk a lot about Bible translation and understanding how we get particular parts of the Bible. Because as you read next week, I'm going to give you a little hint. You're going to get to the part in John chapter 8 about the uh, adulteress, the, the woman caught in adultery. We're going to talk about, because if you use any Bible other than King James, you're going to have notes and brackets around that and little, little things down at the bottom that, that say things about that passage. We're going to talk about that. That's next week. This week, we're looking at the water. We're seeing this big idea that because we have experienced the life-giving water that Jesus provides to us, to believers... We are to be a source for that water to unbelievers. The very words of Jesus right here. He says a lot in these three verses. Actually, he only talks for uh, two verses. It's uh, some explanation there from John in, in the third verse. But there's a lot there. But we've got to get to it. So, let's get to it. Let's read our verses, John 37 John 7, 37 through 39, our focus this morning, so that we, we know where we're going. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, we've got a, we've got a taxi down the runway here, turn around, hit the thrusters, zoom down the runway before we can take off for 37 through 39. First, in verses 1 through 9, we see that Jesus isn't controlled. He's back home in Galilee with his brothers, his brothers who, who don't believe quite in him. They, they have an idea about him, but he, he, Jesus lumps them in with others who don't get it, who are unbelievers. They tell him, go up to, the, go to Jerusalem, dude, announce yourself. And, and uh, as Edda said this morning in, in Connect Group, we don't know if, if they're mocking him or if they are just... They have this political idea, the same as many of the disciples, that he's going to finally kick out Rome. Go do this thing, man. Announce. You got all this power. Go for it. See, the, the, the brothers think in this passage that they're giving good advice, but Jesus isn't controlled by circumstances, by people, by the desires of those around him. Their opinions here don't come from a place of belief, a place of worship, a place of honor. This is another example, just like we talked about last week, or uh, yeah, last week, of, of those coming and wanting the food again. Another example of coming to Jesus with, with our own agenda. Jesus, 
you need to do this for me or do this the way I expect you to do this, how many of you know that is never going to work out well? It, Jesus, here's how I think you need to do this. And he, he's probably polite, maybe. He wasn't as polite to these guys. He was rather blunt. He said, you know what? Being the Son of God and all, I think I've got it. Why don't you just let me handle it? You be obedient. That's basically the answer here. I've got this under control. I respond, he says, in so many words, to when my father tells me to do something. I know what's happening. You don't. My time has not fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. They went on to Jerusalem. Verses 10 through 13, Jesus goes on to Jerusalem, but it says he goes secretly. He, as it were, secretly. It wasn't time when they said, and it certainly wasn't time due to their motives, but when it was time, he left. And we find that when he gets there, there people are talking about him. There's a buzz about Jesus. They don't, he's not doing anything yet. They don't recognize him. But what we see is that Jesus is polarizing. You, you, you don't come down neutral about Jesus. He doesn't allow you to remain neutral about him. He, he says things that, that shock you. He says things that challenge you. He, he says things that make you go, no, I don't want to do that. He's polarizing. Some people uh, in, in, at the festival, there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowd. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, nope, he's deceiving the people. He's not a good man. C.S. Lewis famously said either uh, uh, that, that you can't come to Jesus neutral. He's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either lying about who he is and, and he's got the devil himself in him. He's either a crazy man who thinks he's God and with a God complex and goes around doing magic tricks to fool you and make you think he's God, or he's exactly who he says he is, the Savior, the Lord of the earth, the Son of God himself. But you can't, you can't jump around and, and, and have some of it. Well, he's a good teacher, but good teachers can't be lunatics or liars. So you can't just stop at the good teacher business. These folks couldn't just stop at good man. They were going to have to say something along the lines of what C.S. Lewis said. Good man or deceiver, one isn't right of these two options that they give. One isn't right. He's not a deceiver. And one isn't right enough. Yeah, he's a good man, but he is so much more than that. He's polarizing. And we're going to see that he polarizes even more, even in this passage. Verses 14 through 24 show us that Jesus teaches powerfully. So he's at the festival. He has <clears throat> been there three and a half days or something like that, three days. It was half over. Jesus went up into the tem temple and began to teach. And the Jews were amazed. How is this man so learned since he hasn't been trained? The way that rabbis taught that in those days, you taught what you had been taught. And you gave citations for who taught you. As 
so-and-so said, as Hillel said, as Rabbi whoever said, as, and then you taught those things. <clears throat> Jesus never said, as so-and-so said. Jesus just said. And they recognized, first of all, that he's not teaching what other people have taught, so he hasn't been trained. But he is teaching in such a way, both through his mannerisms, his, his way of speaking, his, his presence, but even just what he says, he says it with authority, as if he is the teacher. He is the originator of the thought. Because, as the second person of the Trinity, he is. He teaches powerfully because he is God teaching. He is teaching what he directly gets from God. Now, remember that when we speak of the incarnate Jesus, we say, because it's the best we can come up with, that when the second person of the Trinity became incarnate, the incarnate Son on earth, that he temporarily set aside the free use of his divine attributes. Temporarily means it wasn't forever. Set aside means he could still get to them, but he put them off. The free use, meaning he depended on his Father to say when he got to use his divine attributes. He never lost them, he never became undivine, but he set aside the free use of those. So, for example, when the woman touches the hem of his robe in one part of the Gospels to be healed, he knows the power goes out of him, and he turns around and says, Who touched me? He wasn't lying, I don't think. Well, he didn't lie, I know. He wasn't asking a rhetorical question either. I believe he really didn't know because God did not allow him to use his divine attributes to know in that moment. Over and over and over we see that Jesus discerns thoughts, but when God tells him. He says, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. So, he gets up here, he is teaching so he is teaching directly what God is telling him to teach. It's not new to him. When he hears it, it's not like, oh, I didn't know that. No, he knew that. He just now gets to teach it because he is told to. And his teaching, we see in this passage, will lead some to believe. I want to stop here for just a second. The greatest teacher who ever lived... The teacher that many, many say no one ever spoke like this man before. The teacher who is getting the words directly from God to say to the people, and what happens? Everybody believes. Some. One of the hardest parts of preaching Every Sunday, teaching other times, is knowing that no matter how many times I say something, some of y'all are going to leave here with absolutely no heart change at all. Nothing. You're not even here to have your heart changed. You didn't come in the doors that way, expecting that, and you're certainly not going to leave that way. And it breaks my heart. But all I can do is go, 
they didn't even believe Jesus. They're certainly not going to listen to me because I ain't him. And I also don't have Jesus' heart, which incidentally is all about gentle, uh, is all what gentle and lowly, the book that we'll be reading in D groups, is all about the heart of Jesus. I don't have his heart. I don't love some of y'all the way Jesus loves y'all. So I cannot imagine the way his heart broke that some, but not nearly all, believed. He taught powerfully. And the response was, kill him. But Jesus is in control. Verses 25 through 36 tells us Jesus is in control. He, he teaches. He's not teaching secretly. He is out in front. He tells them, people are trying to kill me. And, and they, oh, you're, you've got a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Nobody's after you. Nobody's lying about you. Nobody's slandering you. Nobody's trying to get rid of you. Nobody's trying to kill you. You're just stirring this up to get sympathy. He says, okay, blah, 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 blah. He didn't say that, but it's my paraphrase. He doesn't worry about what they have to say. He doesn't worry about the fact that there are people trying to kill him. They are gathering at this moment. We're going to see here in uh, just a few minutes, they're going to go after him. And they can't get to him because he's in control. Jesus knows that it's not his time, so he teaches and moves about without fear. Middle of the festival, when all the people are going to be there that don't like him, and he shows up, starts teaching, and saying the most outlandish, heretical in their minds, things that he could possibly say. But he's all like, it ain't my time, so it doesn't matter. Oh, you're going to arrest me? No, you're not. You think you're going to kill me now? Nope. He's in control. He intentionally teaches in ways that confuse and antagonize those who refuse to believe. He's teaching them, he's saying things that he knows is going to get these fundamentalist Pharisees riled up. Teaching things that they say, that's not what we teach. Yeah, because you don't teach what God teaches, you teach your own, you teach your own traditions. He knows it's going to make them mad. But it doesn't matter because it's not his time. He's in control. And then we get to our passage this morning. So we've set it up in the middle of this festival. Verses 37 and 39. We're now at the end of the festival in verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. John knew this because he was 40 years past the receiving of the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Betrayed, crucified, buried, risen, and glorified. So on the last day of the festival, the seventh day, not the eighth day, that had kind of been added to over the years, 
The water sacrifice is not just performed once in the morning. It's performed seven times on the seventh day. So they pour out seven pitchers of water. I remember they're praying for rain because the cisterns are nearly dry. And here they are getting water from the cisterns to pour out at the altar to offer to God. Y'all, your offering is a sacrifice. It's supposed to be. And I'm talking about your money offering. That is supposed to be a sacrifice. It's supposed to hurt when you give money to the Lord. Because that's why it's called a sacrifice. It ain't a sacrifice if it's easy. If the lamb didn't have to give up his blood, it's not a sacrifice. If he just shows up and, and they take a little syringe, get a little blood, squirt it out. That's, the lamb don't care. Ouch. And moves on. That's no sacrifice. Who sacrifices bre at breakfast? The pig or the chicken? Chicken gives up an egg. Pig gives up his life. Not a great analogy talking about Jewish festivals. They didn't eat the bacon. But you get what I'm saying. It was a sacrifice to pour out the water. The eighth day was actually added to, for, uh, uh, for prayer and reflection. Remember, it's a time of hoping for the Messiah. So they, they go on this seventh day, probably. The, they, they take these seven jars, uh, the, the, these jars of water, seven times. They walk back and forth to the altar, and they pour them out. Picture this. You've got to put yourself here. You, you've got to see what's going on here. The people are praying for water. They're hoping for the Messiah. They're praying for water. They know that they are thirsty. They're dry and they're parched. They know that they have just gone through the new year where they are hoping to change things for the, uh, the new year celebration, where they're hoping to change things for the better so they can balance more good than bad. They've gone through the Day of Atonement where they sacrifice their uh, animals to pay for their sins of the previous year and now they come to the point where they're hoping for renewal and refreshment and they're pouring out this water praying for rain praying for the water that they think is going to give them life but it'll only give them life for another year or so and in the middle of that in the middle of this water ceremony Jesus gets up and says if anyone is thirsty, who was thirsty at that moment in that city? Everybody. Everybody was thirsty. They were probably rationing water at this point. Everybody was thirsty. If you are thirsty, you're praying for refreshing, you're praying for refilling, you're praying for renewal, you're hoping for the Messiah. You're going through these motions with this water. The water's here. The water's here. If anyone is thirsty, I am the water you need. Is your soul parched? Is it dusty? Is it dry as it can, as it can be? Is your heart burning with the fever of sin? Is your life a dry and barren wasteland of pain and brokenness? Remember, they are remembering the wilderness wandering, the desert wandering, where it was always dry and broken and painful and burning. 
And Jesus says, if you are thirsty, well, of course we're thirsty, man. He knows. I am the water you need, he says. You're pouring out this water and you're praying for rain. And you know what? You'll get it. Rain will probably come. More times than not, it does. And then this time next year, the water will be gone and you'll be thirsty again. It's the same message he told the Samaritan woman at the well. This water, you drink it for today, but you're going to be thirsty tomorrow. I have the water that will never run dry. I am the water. Believing is drinking. Because he doesn't just stop. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And lest you think, I'm talking about water. Verse 38, the one who believes in me. Believing is drinking. Last week, believing was seeing. Believing comes first. And then you see, this week, believing is drinking. If you drink from the well of Jesus, you are coming in belief to him. Believe on Jesus for your salvation. And he says, if you do, then streams of living water will flow out of you. A couple of good meanings for us this morning. He, he says, as, scriptures, as Scripture says... As the scripture has said, he will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. What scriptures is he talking about? No one scripture says it exactly that way, but about two, three, four, five, one's going to be written eventually by John. Give us a picture of what he meant. Psalm 105, 41, talking about the wilderness wandering. Makes sense, right? He opened a rock and water gushed out. It flowed like a stream in the desert. Ezekiel 47, 8. Actually, that whole chapter, verses 1 through 12 anyway, is all about it. But I'll, I'll just read verse 8 for you. He said to me, this water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah. When it enters the sea, the sea of foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Oh, we could stop there for a long time. When the water of Jesus comes into us, when we drink freely from that well, when we believe, it takes the poisoned, salty, nasty water of our lives and it cleanses it so that what should come out of us, and he says will, is streams of living water. John's going to pick up this theme at, 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 at God is going to remind John of this theme when he writes Revelation 22.1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The source of living water that we will get to see someday and worship. Isaiah 12.3 talks about the salvation that we have. He said, you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. If that ain't talking about Jesus, I don't know what is. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Isaiah said it. You will draw water from the spring of salvation. Believe, he says. And that water will flow out of you. Zechariah, Zechariah 14.8. 
on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea in summer and winter alike. We are at that day is what Jesus is saying. The living water is flowing out of Jerusalem. All they had to do was come and drink. All we have to do is come and drink. My watch says I'm exercising. And Jesus says once you drink the living water... Then it flows out of you. The living water flows out of you. It's a reference John explains to us. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, which they're going to get in just, at this point, eight months. They'll have the Holy Spirit. We're, We're six months from Passover. Six months from the crucifixion. Then... Pentecost, 50 days from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit, whom John had already received, and whose work he had seen over and over and over, starting when he stood in the courts. And they said of him and Peter, these guys aren't educated. How are they answering these questions so well? The Holy Spirit that John writes about in his gospel saying that will come and guide them to all truth. Jesus tells them in the upper room, in those teachings. Y'all, this is why you read your Bible. And and you read all of it. Because then you connect these things. As a believer, when you come and you drink and you believe, you then have the source of living water in you. It is a never-ending stream symbolizing the permanence of your salvation. Do you hear it? You, You never have to go back to the well. The well is now in you. I drank. I never have to drink again. Because now that is in me. It's 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 immunization, it's inoculation. Once it's there, it's always there, he says. The Holy Spirit in you. Your water and all its benefits will never dry up, Jesus says. This is blowing their minds. Because they have to make the sacrifice at Yom Kippur. They, They have to try to do better after Rosh Hashanah. They come and wait for the Messiah that's someday going to come and make things easier on them. Here at the Feast of booths, a feast of tabernacles. And Jesus says, never again. Because the well, the water will bubble up in you. You will have it in you. And as a believer, then that river should flow out to all you meet, to everyone you come in contact with. I think it's James that says, how in the world do cursings and blessings come out of the same mouth? He's generally referencing this. Because he says, uh, can, can sweet water come from poison springs or something like that? I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Y'all can, y'all can look it up and, and, and correct me. Because he knows... That our lives are supposed to be 
a river of life. Jesus bubbling up in our lives and exposing him to everyone we meet. The people in our lives who don't know Jesus should see hope. Just like they were wanting at this feast. The refreshment they were praying for when they got this new cycle of, of rain clouds that would come. The life that that water would bring, the renewal that they would see in the land, the salvation that was offered that Isaiah talked about, all of that wrapped up in Jesus should be seen by the people we come into contact with every day because if we have drunk, if we have believed, that stream should flow out of us. And they should wonder and marvel at the joy and the peace that flows out of you. They should not wonder and marvel that you claim the name of Christ and yet say and do the things that they see you do and hear you say. Your life should be a healing balm to people. Or at the very least, it should be a signpost pointing to the source of healing and balm for their souls. You can't save people. You have no power to save. But you have the power that saves within you, flowing out of you, if you have drunk at the well, if you have believed. Your life should be a sought-after oasis for those who have wandered aimlessly and hopelessly in a desert world. When, when people are wandering in the deserts, they're looking, they're watching for the palm trees, the, the, the evidence that there's water over there. There's, there's, there's hope, there's refreshing, there's salvation in the midst of this desolate, deadly land. That should be you among the people you come into contact with every day. When people are hurting, when they're dry and thirsty and lost and bound for hell, and they look up and they want help, you should be the oasis that they see. Your life should be the Jesus marker that draws a hurting soul to the feet and heart of the only one that can give them what they need. Not temporary thirst quenching, but eternal thirst removal. Forgiveness and eternal life. Verses 40 through 52, we see that Jesus requires a response. Just like you can't remain neutral, you can't remain undecided and unreacted. You've been led to water, but will you drink? Nobody can make you. You've heard about the source of life, the, the source of water, so you'll never thirst again. Will you drink? 
This morning, believing is drinking every day. Believing is drinking. In this passage, the people say they're, they're arguing about who he was. Is he, is he, is he a prophet? Is, is he the Messiah? Well, Messiah's got to come from here, can't come from there. Is, is he this? Is he, is he that? The servants of the, the chief priests and the Pharisees come back after they're supposed to arrest him. But they get wrapped up in the teaching. Come back and say, no man ever spoke like this. What are we going to do? Dude, he's a good preacher. Pharisees say, well, y'all are idiots. Y'all, y'all just, you're fooled too. Nicodemus comes up and says, aren't we supposed to do this the right way? Oh, are you from Galilee too? You, they, they, they won't hear it. The master teacher told them to come and drink the water of life and they're stirring mud in it. This morning, don't sell him short. He's not just a prophet. This morning, don't turn your back. Well, he can't be the Messiah. He, he, he's not saying the things I want him to say. He, he's not from the place I want him to be from. He's not offering what I want. Don't look for excuses not to respond. No one ever spoke like this. No one ever will again. Come and drink and live. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Next slide, Pat. Thank you. That's the gospel. That's, that's drinking. I'm dry and I'm parched. My heart burns with the ravages of sin. But the gift of God, the water I need, the eternal life that I have to have. Is provided by the living water who says, Come and drink. And you have a next step to take this morning. Be a number of options on the screen, but number one, do you need to come to the living water and be saved? If you have questions about how that works, I'm going to be down here to the front to my right. A couple of our deacons, Lee and Kirk, will be at the back doors. If you'd like to talk to any of us about that, if you'd like to pray about it, how do I go about that, please come and do that. Maybe you have another decision to make, something else that's on the screen, come and talk to us about that. Whatever decision it is, if you don't want to come down front, grab one of us afterward. If you're watching online, message us. Our email address here at the church, admin at fbcsulfur.org. Let us know that way. Call us. Whatever. water's flowing and Jesus says come and drink don't walk away without coming to the well Father pray that you would move on hearts this morning that we would see the water that we need 
We would see the life that it can give us. God, we'd see our lives for what they are without you. Dry, desert, deadly, deadening. God, I pray that we would come and drink. Lord, I pray for the believers here this morning who don't allow that water to flow like it should. For all of us who attempt to have cursings and blessings come from the same place, Lord, it should never be. We have that living water flowing from us. Lord, may the world see it. And see us as messengers, as, as ambassadors of the oasis in a dying, hell-bound, hell-burning desert. Move in this place this morning, we pray. Amen. As we sing, now's your time of decision. What you're going to do? Worship, but do business with God. Hear Him and obey Him this morning as we stand and sing.